0: Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join us today. And I'm just going to give you this warning up front. Yeah, we're going to revel in wrong think. And there's going to come a day, you mark my words, there will come a day where people will say, oh yes... Why everyone revels in wrong think, but right now it's only a select few people who are willing to do it. And I'm very happy to have uh, someone I consider a fellow wrong thinker joining me as my guest. I have Alex Knight. Um, Alex joining me from uh, the beautiful state of Vermont. I'm looking since we're connected up electronically. I'm looking out your window uh, via the video feed. Uh, You, my friend, are in a pretty place.
2: Yeah, I am. It's a it's a it's a very rural state. But as we were saying just before we went on air uh, in our in our private conversation, uh, Vermont is is somewhat ugly these days politically. Uh, But uh, but in terms of natural beauty and in terms of environment, yeah, you, you really can't beat it.
0: So I first encountered your work on a website that a mutual friend of ours, Skylar Collins, operates called EverythingVoluntary.com. And I get the email pretty much every night in my inbox. I look and I see and there's new articles. And I started reading your work and I went, okay, here's a guy who gets it. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to ask you, tell us just a little bit about yourself, what you do, what makes you tick. And then let's talk about some specifics of your journey to, uh, to becoming a voluntarist.
2: Well, okay. I, I guess uh, if, if I was going to answer, uh, answer to your, to your request uh, directly, I guess I would start with things that have, you know, little if anything to do with voluntarism. Uh, it, uh, I'm, I get on these kinds of shows and podcasts uh, quite frequently because of my non-fiction writing, but the other half of what I do as a writer is a, I'm a fiction writer, and I predominantly write in, uh, in, the, in uh, the speculative genres, which would be, you know, horror, science fiction, fantasy, Uh, So I've I've published uh, a couple of novels in that genre, uh, as well as a collection of a couple of collections of short stories. uh, And I, you know, I continue to write in that field. Uh, But as I say, I, I, you know, for every maybe 10 libertarian style podcasts or radio appearances that I do, I do maybe one pertaining to that, (laughs) even though I kind of I kind of enjoy doing that kind of writing a little bit more. uh, my path to libertarianism uh, began, I think, in 1994, uh, when I was—I um, was—I happened to be reading an article that was uh, from one of those freebie newspapers that you kind of pick up, uh, you know, on the supermarket on the way out the door, called the Seacoast Times. And there was an article that was written by a guy who was sort of like a far leftist by the name of Sean Glennon. Uh, this was in New Hampshire uh, at the time, and. Uh, this guy had published an article about the drug war and how he wanted to see it end, which was an area where I, I pretty much agreed with him. Um, and he happened to mention that uh, the libertarian candidate for governor, Steve Winter at that time, was in favor of, of ending the drug war, at least was in favor of marijuana legalization or something of that nature. And I, I started reading the article, and I said libertarian, and it was really the first time I'd ever heard that word. And you have to understand this is 1994. So the internet wasn't a big thing. I didn't even have a computer. I wasn't even online back. It's amazing to to remember back to those days, but, the, but that, that was a time that actually existed, believe it or not, for the younger listeners. <laughs> and uh, so I went, uh, I opened up the phone book and there was a, there was an 800 number for the libertarian party of New Hampshire. Um, and of course at that time, I didn't, I didn't understand what libertarianism really meant, but I would wanted to find out. So I, I rang up and I got a message machine and I, I requested an information package, and a couple of days later, one showed up in the mail, and I dragged out all this literature. There were all these booklets and pamphlets and brochures and everything, and I, I spent a few days just kind of educating myself, and I said, you know, this is more or less what I've believed all along. I just didn't know it, you know? Um And so I became involved with them. I I began to contact them and call them up on the phone. And eventually I did get plugged in on the Internet and got a computer and and we started going along like that. And I became the communications director for the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire, Um, met a few, you know, prominent people. Uh, The the late, great Roy Ennis was a guy that I, I had spoken with at some to some extent. Uh, Another guy was the late, great Don Galloway, who was a Hollywood actor. He was mostly known for uh, being on Ironsides, uh, which was on TV back in the late 60s and early 70s. That was his major claim to fame, but he was in a lot of television and movies. He became and he moved to New Hampshire and became involved with us. And he was a great guy. It's very sad that he's no no longer with us anymore. Um, But uh, anyway, I I did a lot of work with him and I won uh, activist of the year for I think it was 1998. And I kept on with like that for a couple of of years, but things began to bother me. And what began to bother me was libertarian ideas versus the whole concept of party politics, elections, voting, and so on. And I began to realize, as have a lot of other people, Um, who call themselves a variety of different labels, voluntarist, anarcho-capitalist, agorist, Mm -hmm. libertarian anarchist. Uh, Sometimes people just use the word anarchist, free market anarchist, market anarchist. You you know, all more or less synonyms with with various degrees of of nuance involved, I guess, uh, with certain people, uh, with certain terminology. But I began to look at that more and more. And uh, in 2000, this is when Harry Brown was running for president under the libertarian ticket. And by that point, I was becoming more and more libertarian radicalized, I guess you could say. And I began uh, to get uh, involved in the tax truth movement that was headed up by Irwin Schiff, a number of others like Larkin Rose and and uh, Joe Bannister came along. But I was, I, in fact, I knew Irwin Schiff to some degree. We never met face to face, but I was going on his radio show a lot, talking with him on the telephone a lot. Great guy. Uh, again, another, another sad uh, story there in terms of him passing away and passing away behind bars, where the government had him as a political prisoner simply for exposing the truth, really. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I had a meeting with Harry Brown. and. One one plank in his platform was that he wanted to eliminate the income tax, and I said, "Well, that's great. I, I don't disagree with that." I said, "But you know, if you're going to eliminate the income tax, exactly what law do you plan to repeal?" And he couldn't cite one, and he became very upset with me, very angry that I was going public with this and uh, right in front of a bunch of people. Kind of just came up and got in my face and uh, denounced me and said, "You know, you you're the kind of guy that gives libertarians a bad name and." You know, this is just too radical and, and people are not going to gravitate towards this. And it was really a shame because I had a lot of respect for Harry and I still do. And I think he I think he was I think he was a great man in his way, but he definitely had a blind spot in that one alley. And I, I, I've i always felt bad that our one and only meeting had to have that kind of a negative tone behind it. But uh, that can't be gone back and, and reversed in any capacity. And, and there are certain parts of it that I still don't regret. Uh. uh I, I don't think you should ever regret coming forward with the truth. Uh, maybe I might have handled it in a little bit of a different capacity, but uh, but it wasn't. I, I don't think the I don't think the, the brunt of the ire was on my side of that uh, of that of that particular confrontation, if you want to call it that. It was his confrontation, not mine, really. Um, but at, at any event, you know, that's that's all twenty years in the past. It was at that point that I really began to question whether libertarianism and politics are in any way compatible and whether or not the whole term libertarian party is not just simply a misnomer. Uh, I, not long after that, came to the conclusion that yes, it is. Um, And uh, uh, so I became what you would call a a voluntarist or libertarian anarchist.
0: Now, I know for some people those words are going to make sense for others, and I'm, i mean I don't mean to be condescending when I say this, but uh, I'm going to ask you dumb it down for me when we talk about an anarchist. some people think anarchist and they're picturing the folks that have been running rampant through city streets, burning, smashing, beating people up these last few months um, that's that's a particular type of anarchist, but it doesn't begin to encompass um, what what anarchy really gets at. In fact, I, I, my understanding is anarchy is not that scary a word when you really understand uh, the, the etymology of the word.
2: Well, that's that's very true. Anarchy has become one of those kind of scary, frightening words that is automatically considered synonymous with chaos. But if we trace its ancient Greek roots back to anarchos, it simply means no rulers it does not mean no rules it does not mean going out and vandalizing and smashing windows and killing
0: people no that's and that's that's the the thing i've had i've had great difficulty trying to communicate that to people because they're like well you know we don't have this and we don't have laws for that well it's all going to be anarchy and i'm like You say that like it's a bad thing, and it it may not necessarily be so. We've got to go to break here in about 30 seconds. Alex Knight is my guest. Um, Alex, when we come back, I want to just kind of pick your brain a little bit on uh, where your journey took you from there. Uh, Some of the names that you're naming, I'm realizing you and I have... have, We've been tracking on some kind of parallel paths. These are a lot of the same names that I've encountered in my own search for, you know, how to be free in an unfree world. If I could steal that line from Harry Brown, and it ain't exactly getting easier, but I, I think uh, you and I would probably line up on it's absolutely worth whatever effort it requires, simply because that's preferable to living under someone else's thumb or someone else's heel. So, Alex Knight is my guest. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is the Brian Hyde show.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you each weekday at this time by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. If you are in or around the Salt Lake City area... In fact, if, you, if you're not, you should plan a trip to the Salt Lake City area and swing into Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Why? Well, let's just say that you have a finite amount of money to spend on your groceries and you want to stretch those grocery dollars as far as you possibly can. Nikki's can help. Seriously, he purchases his food from different food wholesalers, passes the savings on to you. The variety is incredible. It's a a legit warehouse, okay, so you're not going to mistake this for Sam's Club or Costco. It's a warehouse, but everything comes with a money-back guarantee. He accepts CBT, he accepts all major credit cards, and you can find out more by going to Facebook. That's where you'll find Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, directions and everything, pictures of everything that has come in this week, from frozen meats to fresh produce to bags of soup. I need to make a note of uh, which ones I want to go pick out because it's getting to be soup weather. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. All right, back to my guest, Alex Knight. Alex, uh, Alex, you are actually a very accomplished writer. I've not read your fiction work, but I love your take on the passing scene, and you're a guy who obviously thinks things through. Um, Let's complete, let's talk a little bit more about your journey um, becoming a voluntarist.
2: Uh, well, okay. Uh, after the the, the aforementioned, um, uh, you know, encounter with Harry Brown, that I think that was kind of like a, a turning point for me. Uh, it was really kind of a watershed moment where I saw that, uh, you know, incorporating libertarian ideas into politics was not really something that was ever really going to work. Uh, that the two are kind of mutually exclusive concepts and that it was more effective to, uh, to at that point, my, my perspective was it's, it, it was really more effective to try to just eliminate the state altogether. Uh, and I began to talk more and more with people who would be called voluntarists. That's the term that I prefer, because it's one that, that does not have the kinds of scary, negative connotations to a lot of people as anarchist does and it doesn't have the misconceptions surrounding it as just libertarian does <laughs> Good point. Uh, voluntarious is one of those words that has not yet been disputed or usurped by other people for other purposes so voluntarious it is um uh i began to immerse myself more and more in in associating with and talking with people and reading books and, and such that were more on that side of the libertarian spectrum and uh and and i've, I've just never looked back I've, I've i've kind of abandoned any hope or any thoughts uh about uh the state being some kind of a viable vehicle for change as long as government exists freedom never will uh and as long as markets exist f- freedom has a chance and i think that's probably the the, the uh, uh the best way of looking at it now and moving forward
0: how does the non-aggression principle uh connect with or intersect with uh, with voluntarism is, is it a part of being a voluntarist
2: well i think i think it's it's the fundamental starting point i mean it's it, it you know that is to voluntarism what uh, a foundation is to a house or something you know i mean it's you if you if, if you're not going to live by the non-aggression principle then you're not a voluntarist and you can't be one
0: Let's uh, let's break this down for people who may be uh, unfamiliar with the non-aggression principle. When, when we talk about this, uh, some people are going to get images in their minds of uh, hippie children with flowers in their hairs, you know, holding hands in the sunlight. Um, but w- when we're talking non-aggression, there's a much more practical application. How would you describe it to someone who hasn't heard that before?
2: Well, I, you know, my, we, uh, we, we, I think we talked about Skyler Collins, or you did just, 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 just a few moments ago. He has an admonition that he likes to add to the end of his podcast and the end of his broadcast. He always says, always remember, don't hurt anybody, don't take their stuff, and don't ask permission. That's a great adage. I, oh, I, would, yeah. simply, I would simply add to, to, to kind of fine-tune that, you know, don't hurt anybody unless, of course, it's self-defense. If it's legitimate self-defense, you have a right to defend yourself, of course. Okay. it does. not you know, not hurting someone doesn't mean you have to be an absolute pacifist. You could be. You could be. There's room for that within the libertarian ethic. But self-defense is always a viable thing when it's when it's justifiable. Um, You know, don't not only don't don't take anybody's stuff, but also don't damage anybody's stuff, because that's a form of taking. You know, vandalism, even though it's not out and out theft, is still theft of the value or the utility of something. And it is nevertheless theft, just the same so i would I would include vandalism in there with theft as well. Uh, and then beyond that, beyond those two basic rules, don't ask permission. Don't act as if someone else has the authority to otherwise tell you what to do. Yeah, and that's really about it. it's it's as simple as that. it's It's really as easy as pie, but people have constructed these immensely complicated, uh uh, philosophies that be and they become complicated because they deviate from and don't recognize the simplicity of that kind of conduct
0: and i i would just add one other facet to that and that is don't support public policy that seeks to hurt people take their stuff or otherwise force them to ask permission where they really shouldn't have to ask permission and this is where a lot of people i think uh, are surprised to find that hey wait a minute I have a little tyrant inside me, and it's true. Anytime you say, well, there ought to be a law, you know, that's that's your little inner tyrant trying to get out, and and we excuse it because, well, if enough of us agree on it, then it must be right, but it still is aggression, even if you're outsourcing it to the state, and and that's a hard habit to break, but to me, that's that's one of the keys. If you want to really be a free individual and live like a free individual would, you've got to be willing to let go and let other people peacefully do what they will do and and be okay with it.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well said.
0: Talk to me about the current state of affairs. There's a lot going on. I'm not asking you to solve the world's problems, but as, <laughs> as you look at the big picture, let's zoom out to 20,000 feet. Um, are you feeling hopeful for the future of freedom as you look at what's going on in this country or even in your own locale?
2: Uh, the answer to that is, 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 for the most part, a uh, a No. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that what we're discussing right now, you know, voluntarism is something that is going to have any kind of a major or a significant impact within the lifetime of of, of anyone that's uh, that's listening to this right now, unfortunately. I think it's a multi-generational thing, and I think the jury is still very much out as to whether or not uh, humanity can pull out of the tailspin that it's been in for the past several thousand years uh, and whether there will be a next step in 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 evolution at some point, or whether we are just doomed to repeat these same mistakes over and over again in a cyclical pattern. one one thing that is hopeful if we if we look back at at a historical timeline is that, Throughout history, the trend has been towards greater and greater emphasis being placed on the individual. I think that's positive. It's been very slow. It's been very imperfect. It hasn't worked all that well. Uh, What we have here in America is probably the greatest example of it so far, and we can see how dysfunctional it is. Um, But uh, maybe that will bear fruit, but it it probably won't be in our lifetimes, unfortunately.
0: Okay. And I appreciate your take on that. And I look... um, it's, it's hard to find good information to go on today. Uh, knowing who to believe, knowing what to believe, uh, you know, the, the, the heritage media has not made this any easy, easier. I had trust issues before. Now I'm really a basket case. But, uh, Alex, we've got about a minute or so left here. Talk to me about uh, where people can access your writings. Where can they get to better know you and your work?
2: Uh, Well, I've got a a, a number of nonfiction archives from places I've written in the past. If you want to go to the most current writings of mine, uh, I encourage you to visit everything-voluntary.com. You can also go to strike-the-root.com. Uh, I have an archive there. Those are probably the most recent of my writings. There are some other things. If you just put my name, Alex R. Knight, the third, that's with a, a Roman numeral three at the end, uh, into a search engine, you'll come up with a lot of different things, my nonfiction and my fiction uh, included. So that's that. Maybe that's the best way to go overall.
0: Yeah, I would, and I would absolutely encourage my listeners. If you haven't subscribed to getting the emails on a regular basis from Everything Voluntary, do it. You will not regret it, and you'll get to introduce to great writers like Alex as well as others. Alex, keep up the great work. You and I have got to talk again. We have a, we have a lot of uh, common interests here, starting with freedom.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Brian. You know, Thanks for having me, and absolutely, any time, I'd love to come back on the show. Thank you.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113 got a couple of different places I'd like to go in the time that remains today. Um, this is an article from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. And I, I know that uh, right now there's a big question mark over everybody's heads. How's the election going to turn out? Is it really going to be, you know, the 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 source of drama that a lot of people are making it out to be? And I don't want to try to I'm not implying that uh, there's not a lot riding on this. I think there there may be. But I also think that Um, We put more faith into elections than we should. Now, having said that, and I'm just going to go along with with an idea that a couple of different people have put forth. If, in fact, you know, this premature, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Coronation of of Joe Joe Biden as president elect. If, in fact, that is something that turns out to to hold and he ends up uh, taking the Oval Office Uh, taking office in January. Um, Trump has some time on his hands between now and then. He's got a couple of months. And I'm not suggesting this is a fine time to throw monkey wrenches into the work. I'm suggesting there are a couple of things he could do that would send a very clear message. And I mean a clear message that the deep state is not going to simply have its way with us. And one of the first and foremost things that should be at the top of his list is pardon Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. Now, I want to share with you the case for why he should do this. This is from Jacob Hornberger, who says, since even before Donald Trump uh, won the 2016 election, it's been clear that the American deep state has opposed his presidency. And while Trump has deferred to the Pentagon and the CIA by maintaining their forever wars and foreign military empire and foreign interventionism and coups and assassinations... It's also been clear that Trump hasn't been as obsequious to the national security establishment as presidents are expected to be. The deep state will not be disappointed with Trump's departure and they will be ecstatic with Joe Biden as president. Why? Because they know they can count on Joe Biden. Well, now that his term in office is apparently over, Hornberger says Trump can send one parting shot at the national security establishment and its acolytes as well as to the mainstream press, one that would be based on a pure sense of justice. And that would be to issue pardons for Edward Snowden and Julian Assange before Trump walks out the door, preferably now rather than later. He says pardons for Snowden and Assange would send a powerful message to the national security establishment. Telling the truth about your evil, immoral and nefarious dark side activities is not a crime in our country. It is a badge of honor. After all, that's the national security crime that both men are being persecuted for and prosecuted for. Imagine being persecuted and prosecuted for telling the truth and for disclosing evil, illegal deep state actions to the American people. Hornberger says it only goes to show how the conversion of the federal government from a limited government republic to a national security state after World War II has warped and perverted the fundamental moral values within our nation. Consider, for example, the CIA's repeated assassination attempts in the early 1960s against uh, Cuban President Fidel Castro. How many Americans questioned the morality and legality of those assassination attempts? How many Americans questioned the assassination partnership between the CIA and the mafia to murder Castro? Notwithstanding the fact that the mafia is one of the most crooked, murderous, drug-dealing organizations in the world. Jacob Hornberger says, unfortunately, I would say not very many Americans objected. And that's because of the indoctrination that people receive, primarily in school, that the CIA is a force for good in the world and that action it takes protects national security. Yet where in the Constitution does it authorize the federal government to murder someone? He says, Indeed, my reading of the Bill of Rights is that it expressly prohibits the feds from murdering people without due process of law and trial by jury. Where was the moral justification for murdering Castro? That he was a communist? Since when does a person's beliefs justify his extermination? That Cuba invaded the United States? He says, Don't make me laugh. It's always been the U.S. government that has been the aggressor against Cuba. Not only through assassination, but also through an invasion, terrorism, and one of the most brutal economic embargoes in history. Now just imagine that someone within the deep state had warned Castro of a certain CIA assassination plot. Well, the deep state would have considered him to be a bad person, a traitor to America, for daring to disclose its evil, immoral, and illegal plot to murder an innocent person. He would be treated the same as Snowden and Assange are being treated. That's what passes for patriotism in a national security state. Don't dare disclose our dark side secrets to the world, no matter how evil, immoral, or illegal they are, or we will destroy you or kill you. Now, Jacob Hornberger has made this case better than anyone that I know, and that is the worst mistake the American people have ever made, was permitting the federal government to be converted to a national security state and then falling for its Cold War racket. The best thing the American people could ever do is restore our founding governmental system of a limited government republic. And this is why he says a good step in the right direction would be to pardon Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. What a great way for Trump to stick it to the deep state and its supporters in the mainstream press before he departs the presidency. Now, I don't want you to get caught up, and I understand it's it's easy to do, to get caught up in, you know, thinking that, well, you know, this obviously Jacob Hornberger is just an anti-Trumper. I don't think he really cares that much about who is in the White House. I think his concern is much more on, is the country operating under the limited powers it's supposed to have according to the Constitution? So step out of that partisan mindset for a moment and understand, if in fact... It turns out that Trump ends up leaving the White House in January. I know it will be disappointing for a lot of people if that turns out to be the case. It won't be the end of the world. And this is just one instance in which he could do some very serious harm to the deep state by helping to roll back some of its more egregious overreach. Something to think about. All right, I got something else to share with you. Now, (laughs) this one gets my blood pressure up just a little bit, but how how can you make a difficult situation even more unpleasant? Well, the answer is you just add taxes. And I saw this article on Reason Magazine earlier today, and just, first of all, my eyes rolled, and then I could hear my pulse in my ears, and I thought, really? Here's what the headline says. The headline asks the question, Should remote workers pay a tax for the privilege, in quotation marks, of using their home as an office. Yes, seriously, there is a bureaucrat out there who is trying to propose a 5% income tax on people working from home, the revenue of which could be spent supplementing the lost wages of service workers. It's actually Deutsche Bank that that, uh, has proposed this. Are you ready for this? The, ar- the, author is art- the article is authored by Christian Britsche, who says the coronavirus pandemic has devastated the service sector, made millions unemployed, and forced many of us who still do have jobs to work remotely. Well, fortunately, we now have a perfect solution to all this economic dislocation and disruption. A new tax on working from home. This week, the German financial giant Deutsche Bank released a new report full of proposals for how governments and corporations should respond to the pandemic. Included in the report is a call for a 5% tax on the incomes of people who work from home in places where the government is not advising or forcing people to do so. Deutsche Bank's Luke Templeton says, For years we've needed a tax on remote workers. COVID has just made it obvious. Remote workers are contributing less to the infrastructure of the economy while still receiving its benefits. Holy inverted view, Batman. Luke, listen to your conscience. These are people who aren't straining the infrastructure by being out there driving on the roads. Come on. No, we need to tax them for the privilege of working at home. Now, those who do have the privilege of telecommuting are reaping rewards hand over fist in the form of less money spent on transportation, restaurant meals and dry cleaning. That's what Templeton's arguing. So who loses in that scenario? Well, he says it's service workers that once catered to downtown desk jockeys and who are now suffering depressed wages or even unemployment as those office workers spend their money closer to home. To right this wrong, Deutsche Bank is proposing a 5% tax on remote workers' salaries. That tax would be paid by the employer if people work from home, if it requires people to work from home, rather, and it would be paid by the employee if he or she voluntarily opts into the arrangement. So they're thinking, look, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's only going to net maybe $10 per day from each worker on average, according to Deutsche Bank. But it would make sure that no one benefits too much from using their home as an office. The revenue from the tax estimated to be about $48 billion in the U.S. could provide each of the 29 million workers unable to work from home and making less than $30,000 a year with a $1,600 wage subsidy. We'll finish this up just the other side of our break.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. I'm still just shaking my head. I'll, I'll link this article in the show notes, which you can find at the thebrianhydeshow.com. But should remote workers be taxed for the privilege of being able to work from home? Well, it depends. Did they choose to do so, or did they uh, did, did they not I got to tell you, the, the happiest day of my life was the day that I realized it was entirely possible for me to broadcast from my home studio and not have to drive through Salt Lake City traffic to get to the radio station. Now, it's a mixed blessing in the sense that I, I love my friends at the radio station. I do miss them. I, I, I enjoyed seeing their smiling faces, but I never, ever enjoyed that time spent in traffic. And so every single day that I can work remotely, which is pretty much every day, feels like, uh, I don't know, I feel like I got some extra bonus in life. Oh, I see the point. It makes me happy. Therefore, I should be taxed. At least I think that's how some politicians see this. Anywho, let's go to the phone 801 331 8113. Caller, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Brian. It's great to be with you on the radio today. Kevin, Um, how are you? I'm fine very cold up here in montana i have a question Uh, i want to talk about a couple things i know we're limited on time do you think this mask mandate is going to backfire on governor herbert because people in salt lake and provo and that area where you're at maybe they're not up in arms but i'll tell you you and i both know southern utah extremely conservative especially in the cedar city area and especially when you get into south central utah
0: yeah, there are a lot of people who are definitely not taking it lying down. And, and I hope people understand it's not just a matter of, well, you know, I'm going to be contrary. You can't tell me what to do. There's a very legitimate concern about governor. Where on earth do you think you get the authority to make something like this punishable under the laws? And I think you may actually see the legislature tasked with, uh, with clipping the governor's wings when they start their session this coming January.
3: Well... The other question I wonder about, and maybe our good old friend Ammon Bundy can tell us, do you think that this was bought on because, A, the election's over and people assume that Joe Biden is going to win? And do you think the state is getting more money? Because if you remember back in March when Governor Herbert did this executive order— um Utah was getting quite a bit of money, and there was a memorandum of understanding that was signed because the federal government is, isn't just going to lend the state money without stipulations. Part of that was the uh, corporations had to mandate masks and places had to be shut down for a time. I wonder if there's more money coming into the state, and the politicians are getting their piece of the pie. What do you think?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I believe that there are some very perverse incentives attached to this. And, and the thing that I'm wondering is, look, the mask mandates don't work. I know people want to argue with no, simple science, folks, or the masks will save your life. No, it's not simple science. And in fact, you know, there, there are plenty of reasons to question it. But the biggest thing is, by what moral authority does someone start attaching criminal penalties to, to wearing a mask? and and i did you know it's it's putting us it's creating division it's creating conflict it's uh, it's putting people into harm's way whether they're enforcing those mask mandates or resisting the enforcement of those mask mandates and and here's the kicker places that didn't institute mask mandates like sweden oh and finland and norway they have done very well in how they have addressed this illness in other words, yes, they have seen cases, they have seen deaths, but their numbers have tapered off to where the deaths are almost nothing now. And that's that's explained through herd immunity. And it's because they didn't lock everything down and they didn't rethor- resort to these authoritarian mandates of making people do what some expert thinks they should do.
3: Yeah, well, here in Montana, there's not a mass mandate yet. Although maybe, I don't know. we have a Republican governor finally in January, but we'll see. Hopefully he's not bought off by the federal government. Time will tell. Who knows. But I wanted to talk about working at home really quick. Um, I would have loved to have worked at home when I was with Verizon Wireless. And no, I don't think they should tax you. I think their government, I think our government wants a piece of the action. In fact, you might be interested to know in Canada. This explains why I saw so many at-home businesses. If you had an at-home business in Canada, you got to pay less in taxes. This was back in the
0: 90s. Yeah, I, I have no problem with people who work from home. <laughs> Excuse me. Most of the people I know here in my neighborhood are in a similar situation like me. They work from home. And I just can't see the, the mentality that says, you know, you ought to be punished for that. I Look, we're all trying to do the best we can. I think government needs to just stay out of the way as much as possible and, and let us find the best ways to solve problems. The market will determine if it works or not.
3: Well, I, I always thought that uh, more and more people ought to work from home. This is, uh, as much as I think the government's clamping down on Corona too much, this might be something positive that'll come out of it. What do you think?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. I think it's a good thing. Kevin, great Can to I hear from so. you. Stay, stay warm Yeah, and uh, right. let, hope we talk again soon. By the way, I'm going to post an article here in the show notes. I hope you'll check this out. This is from John Miltimore. How Finland and Norway proved Sweden's approach to COVID-19 works. And he backs it up. He's got the data here. He's got the charts showing the government response stringency index. And it shows that Finland and Norway, you don't hear much about them. You hear a lot about Sweden. Well, you know, Sweden's actually handled this well without using this really stringent approach and mandates. Well, believe it or not, Finland and Norway were even less restrictive than Sweden. Now, look, it's no it's no um, secret that the coronavirus is back and forth in force, rather in fact, uh, one of the TV stations in Salt Lake reported, why? You know, the most coronavirus cases ever recorded in a single day in the state. And I, and I couldn't resist asking, hey, what about the flu cases? Tell us what the numbers are on those, or does it not exist anymore? Have you noticed that? We're in the midst of flu season right now. And so when they talk about, well, hospital beds are filling up, okay, do they normally fill up during the flu season? It's a simple yes or no question. But it seems like everything is being treated. Well, it's probably COVID. It's probably coronavirus. I don't know. Since the beginning of the pandemic, governments all over the world have been trying to tame the virus. Every one of them has failed to varying degrees. And and the crazy part about it is the folks who are advocating for lockdowns, by now they have eight, eight or nine months worth of data to look at to see, well, how well did that work? And the truth of the matter is, the lockdowns really don't seem to make a difference. John Miltimore points out, you know, whether governments implement draconian lockdowns or modest lockdowns or no lockdowns at all, the virus continues to spread. Some with harsh lockdowns say they've fared better. Many have fared worse. But the point here is the virus doesn't care what the official policies are that are put in place. So with that in mind, maybe people should be able to make more of their own decisions about how much risk are you willing to assume. And you need to accept the fact that you and I and even government are powerless to stop this virus. Because that's the problem I'm seeing right now is there are just way too many either political or bureaucratic leaders who just cannot admit that they can't control it. John Miltimore says decades ago in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, economist F.A. Hayek warned of the dangers of this kind of hubris, this presumption that, well, those in power, they know better. They don't. And as Miltimore says, if a man continued to live in ignorance of the limits of his knowledge, it would breed a fatal striving to control society, a striving which makes him not only a tyrant over his fellows, but which may well make him the destroyer of a civilization. And John Miltimore says it's a lesson that's never been more important. We'll soon know if it's one we're finally prepared to learn. I just want to make this clear because I I don't want anybody to misunderstand. Telling the government to back off and to stay in its lane is not the same thing as saying the rest of us should just throw our hands in the air and do nothing. We should strive to get the best information we can, keeping in mind that experts and mixing authority with with science is not always going to give you the best solution or the best answers listen to all of the experts out there and there are a lot of differing points of view on how this can be handled get the best information you can assess how much risk you are willing to personally take on and then make your own decisions from there that is consistent with freedom that is consistent with proper government it's consistent with reality We just got to convince the authoritarians that that's the better approach. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show.